Welcome to Behind the Mask, the podcast that offers a fresh lens on the male psyche, exploring behaviours, perceptions and mental health in 2021. Today, we're speaking with workplace consultant and author Matt Dean. Matt's day job of over 20 years is teaching workplaces how to be nicer to each other and realising the benefits of this. He does this at his own consultancy, Burn Dean. Matt's also lived with cancer for many years now and is the author of The Soft Stuff, a book in which he combines his thoughts on both of those things, both kind workplaces and his cancer. So there are some really nice insights and advice that we hope are useful for people and that they can take out of this. Get onto some really interesting topics as well, which include finding your purpose at work, the burnout crisis, the impact that COVID has had on workplaces in general, and how cancer changed Matt's life perspective. My name's Matt Dean. Um, I am a founder of Burn Dean. Um, we're a workplace consultancy. Um, our purpose is kinder, fairer, more productive workplaces. Before Burn Dean, which we started in 2003, I was a lawyer. And way back in the midst of time, I was um, a brand manager for Unilever. I just mentioned that I speak a bit funny because the right-hand side of my tongue is a piece of my arm, which was introduced to my mouth in 2016 uh, as a, in a cancer operation. So uh, I apologize. I, I feel much more, I really feel that I sound odd. Everyone says, oh, no, you don't. And I always think they're lying. But um, I spit quite a lot and probably more than I'd like to, but you wouldn't know that because this is a podcast. <laughs> Thank you for entering, Matt. And um, yeah, you mentioned some of the, the fantastic life experience you've had. Um, you know, here, here on Behind the Mask so far, we've, we've traditionally been easing our guests in a little bit, though with you, we'd, we'd quite like to really get straight into the thick of it. Um, you, you mentioned some of your great experiences. We know you've been an employment lawyer, you know, consultant on making workplaces happier, more productive. You've written your very own book on that topic. Uh, and as you said, you've, you've dealt with cancer for a good number of years. And and with all of that incredible experience, um, both in and out of work under your belt, we, we would love to kick things off and ask you, what would you tell yourself in your mid-twenties if, if you could go back in time and have the chance? I, I, thought, I thought about this, as you know, we were chatting the other day, and I want to tell you a story. Um, in a restaurant recently with my, with my wife, and it's a restaurant that we used to go to years ago, and my wife said to me, We'd be pleased, wouldn't we? And what she meant was, with where we are now, if we were back there when we were here for 20-whatever years ago, I gave a sort of reserved... Yeah, I think so. I should have said in a completely unreserved way, oh, my God, yeah, A, I'm alive. And there have been moments, particularly in 2009, where that was up for grabs. What, in, what was in my head? when I gave that reserved, yeah, I think so, was something that's always in there. And it's this thought about where I might have been rather than actually where I am now. The really simple message that I would give to my 28-year-old self is just stop it with the achievement thing. Just focus on, go through the five things, stay alive, healthy, 
staying with Boo, my wife. The boys or girls who may turn up and may you may be blessed with. Your friends and this is the other thing, building something that you believe in that will pay the bills. So that would be what I would say to myself. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's a fantastic answer. I think you've touched on a lot of what we want to get into with you between um, what between the business side of things, and obviously, you know, your experiences with cancer and, and your life experiences, which we definitely want to get to get into properly in a in a little bit. Um, I think something that's that struck me initially is you mentioned you've built something meaningful that pays the bills. Um, I've from your book, there's a lot about purpose in there. And we actually mentioned in the last podcast we did how there's some studies about a sense of purpose might be the, the biggest, you know, uh, cause of happiness in people and what makes people truly happy. How, how important do you think that purpose is on a daily basis, particularly in the world of work? Because a lot of people do jobs that maybe, you know, they, they do to pay the bills. And, and how important do you find it doing what you do to have something with a sense of purpose? That's a fantastic question, Tom. Um, so I talk in the book, in chapter one, about purpose and me, and the, the subheading is a very long courtship, because I knew in the 1980s, when I was at Unilever, that purpose really mattered to me, but I did nothing about it, and I just slept walk. And what that led to was what I call, in the book, a continuous internal dialogue of not belonging. And that dialogue was really overt and explicit. I remember it, you know, I'd wake up, had to go into the garden to have a bag in those days. I don't smoke anymore, obviously. Um, and, you know, the two things are linked. But I remember out there in the garden thinking, I don't belong here. I remember on the train in the way to work thinking, I don't belong here. I remember walking, <laughs> it's really funny, when we moved from the main office building of the law firm I was working in to a satellite office of the law firm I was working in, things became much easier because I could pretend I wasn't actually working in the main law firm. So it didn't feel quite as bad to walk into the office. All the way through, there was this sense of you're not in the right place. And that's just not healthy. And, and, and you shouldn't put up with it. If you're talking about good workplaces, unless you're clear about your individual purpose and you're in a setting that enables that purpose. Nothing's ever going to feel right. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. I mean, a lot of people in particular who will listen to this podcast are probably in the kind of, uh, I'd say the 18 to 30 sort of age range. And a lot of people, you know, may be entering the world of work for the first time. Someone might be listening right now in their first ever proper job. And I think, um, I don't know, Ruby may relate to this as well, the kind of imposter syndrome feeling of, oh my God, I should not be here and 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 what am I doing? I mean, what what would you say to somebody who was struggling with their sense of, of purpose at, at work? I mean, maybe their workplace isn't quite right for them. Is it a case of finding somewhere that is right for them? Like you say, a congruent environment for that. I mean, is that the most important step that p people can take? So I've got another story, if you don't mind, Tom. Lovely, yeah, as I said, yeah, I opened the stories and you're a great storyteller. When I was at Unilever, it was a fantastic grad scheme and we used to go on two-week residential courses. I was on that programme. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I really like your job. 
when you have that sense of that's what I want to do, and this is the only time I remember having that sense, do it. I remember saying to Murray, because he said, you'd have to retrain as a psychologist. I remember thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to do that. But instead, I've retrained as a lawyer, which probably took just as long. And I was never the right person for that job. Whereas what I wanted to be was a psychologist. So follow follow your dream. It's not quite right. But, you know, if you have a sense of that's what I want to do, it'll probably only come once or twice. You must have seen quite a big shift over the past few years towards well what you said back in the 80s when you first started I guess it was a completely completely different ball game even in terms of uh, people being more aware of like mental health issues nowadays the, the company that I work for is really really good at um, dealing with people with who are, who are having issues at home it's been a learning experience for me as well as a as a manager to learn about how to manage with manage different people who are going through different issues. Um, and I think that's been really great for me personally and something that I've learned through work that I can also take into my, my own day-to-day life. So I think that is, I guess, an example of a positive workplace culture having a, an impact on, on myself and my day-to-day life. You don't have to go back to the 80s for that i'm just thinking about it if i think about the messages that i gave in some of the early training work that i gave to managers so people in your position in financial services institutions or whatever i'm not sure where you work 20 years ago 20 something years ago when i started doing this i started when clem was born so 22 years ago um if someone would have said to me i think i've got someone with mental health problems what do I do? I would have said, don't get involved. I literally would have said, don't get involved. Not your place, mate. That wasn't that long ago. I was always clear from the start of my employment law stuff that when people challenge their organisation, it is a highly stressful thing to do. And you see a lot of mental health issues developing in the people who are bringing claims against businesses. So the people who were on the other side of because I always acted for the organisation um, in my page work. And that gave me a clear sight that mental health was a big issue. And you can look at many and um, most employment problems through a mental health prism. But it wasn't until 2013 when Richard Martin joined Berndine, um and started, he had a catastrophic breakdown in the law firm. And he came, first of all, to do sort of advisory work with us on the employment side, but said, I want to do mental health work, which made perfect sense because he was recovering from what he was recovering from. And it was only then that we actually started with some confidence to start talking to people about mental health. That was 2014, 2015, when this was starting to be a thing. So we were ideally positioned there to to pick up on what's a real... I think trust in society. Hmm. Yeah, I th- I pulled off some stats actually. I was reading up um, just on mental health in the workplace. Um, some really interesting stuff. So evidence suggests that thirteen percent of all sick 
sick days in the UK can be attributed to mental health conditions. Better mental health support in the workplace can save UK businesses up to eight billion pounds per year. Um, But on the other hand, up to 300,000 people with mental health issues lose their jobs each year. So I guess although it does, maybe it does seem like um, it's getting better, I also know people who work in certain industries who um, feel that they've lost their jobs due to informing their seniors that that they've been suffering from mental health issues. So I guess it really depends on the organisation, maybe even industry specific, some are more wary of these things. I don't know if that's something that you've seen in in the work that you do, Matt? That 300,000 stat is a really interesting group. Um, people with long-term mental health conditions lose their jobs double the rate of those without a mental health condition. 300,000 people, that's a city the size of Newcastle or Belfast every year. That's a really big stat. In terms of whether organisations discriminate against people with mental health issues. I think that, again, it's the same point that I made earlier. It comes down to individuals. It comes down to individual managers. And that is part... And and, and that will be influenced by the culture. But the culture here is not what organisations say. It's what they do and how they react to the mental health challenges that they're facing. I um, you, you said to me when we were talking before this podcast about our business is doing enough in this area. So I thought the best thing for me to do would be to ask two of the mental health team at Burndine what they thought about that, because this is their day job. So the first answer I got was, I think that the businesses that I'm working with are trying They recognise that everyone is stretched right now and are in some cases offering advanced, sorry, enhanced EAP, Employee Assistance Programme services, extra mental health awareness sessions, that sort of thing. But having said that, the work continues to pile up and budget isn't always available for mental health initiatives. So you can say something about how we take this, but if the work is piling up on people's desks, you can say what you like. She went on, from what I've seen, burnout is heightening. She said online after the sessions to support people with their mental health, including someone who felt suicidal. You go into a place and you talk about mental health, people will start opening up to you. We've been very, very clear, clear, clear that that happens. She then says the people teams in both cases were brilliant at stepping in and providing support and reassurance to individuals. So that's a great story. Well, no, it's not. It's a rubbish story because someone feels suicidal. But when they raised it with somebody in a forum which we had created, the people team was able to do some stuff. But she finishes by saying she thinks people are at breaking point. Many people are at breaking point because they've lost the routines they had, the social connections that we crave as human beings. She runs a lot of resilient sessions at the moment and people talk about how they've forgotten to go out of the house that day. They've forgotten to go out that day 
or for four, three or four days. They've forgotten the end of their day at, to end their day at a reasonable time because they're not in the office and they're Zoom fatigued and they're on back-to-back calls. And I think, you know, particularly people living alone at the moment, it's really, really tough. The other guy, I just I won't go on about, but he gave me the first, first paragraph I thought was brilliant. Do I think businesses are doing enough? In a word, no. I think we've come a long way and COVID has certainly accelerated this conversation for a lot of employers. However, the work's only just begun. I think there's a second mental health pandemic simmering beneath the surface, the likes of which we'll only really start to see and hear about in the coming months and years ahead. You, know, you open this Pandora's box type thing and yeah. get people to start talking about it, and then you create a situation like we've had this year. We didn't have that sort of problem after the Second World War because no one ever talked about it. Yeah, people have been through all sorts of problems, but... No one talked about it. Now we're encouraging people to talk about it, and then we give them these sort of problems we had in 2020. I think the pandemic, the second pandemic suggestion is is potentially possible. Well, well I completely agree with you, Matt. And, and an opinion that I, I personally hold very tightly is that there's been such such insane advances in our technology and day-to-day life, and, and a lot of our work has been outsourced to machines now. But people's lives aren't necessarily easier. They feel like they're get, often getting harder in the workplace. I mean, if the point of technology is to make our lives easier, it certainly doesn't feel that way for a lot of people in the workplace. And I think burnout is extremely common and, and leads to a lot of mental health problems, like you said. It's something that everybody can relate to when you talk to them about it. And to be honest with you, I'm I'm not sure that a, a nine-to-five working system is necessarily the right thing for us. I think... Our, our lives are precious and we spend so much of it in the workplace. I think that's why you end up with these situations, partly partly why you get these situations you mentioned with people being suicidal at work and and people feeling terrible. I mean, you must have seen a lot of people with experiences of burnout. I mean, how 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 much of a common thing do you think it is? And, and are we doing things the right way with how we work at the moment? Last question first, no. I think this massive working from home experiment that we've has been forced on us is a good thing because i think it's very difficult for a manager now to say you need to be in the office i need to see you you know whatever it's like well you didn't in 2020 and everything seemed to be all right i mean yeah a lot of the organizations that i work with you know i'm talking on a sort of strategic level with them about productivity however they are measuring that because these are not sort of workplaces making things, but, you know, in terms of keystrokes or in terms of um, telephone calls or whatever, productivity is up, even though people are sitting at home. But I've had far too many stories of people not respecting the boundaries. And it's so difficult when you're in this room and, you know, You've got to really focus on that. And the people around you have got to tell you that it's important you focus on that. So I think that's part of the thing that's not happening. The other thing, you mentioned how many people are burning out. If you look at the World Health Organization definition of burnout, it's actually, um, it's not surprising because burnout is a syndrome that results from chronic workplace stress not being successfully managed. So chronic long-term workplace stress not successfully managed. So that's where it comes from. And the three symptoms that the World Health Organization lists, I mean, I've had all of these three for ages. 
Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Tick. Increased mental distance from one's job or feeling negative towards one's career. Now, I haven't got that at the moment. I've definitely had it in the past. Reduced professional productivity. Essentially, burnout is very, very prevalent. And we need to be making sure that managers like Roop know how to deal with that. And that's something that, yes, what, what, what the people who have just given you those, those paragraphs are doing every day. They're trying to help people manage people with mental health problems. Because we all have mental health problems. I was just going to say, I was just going to ask you, Matt, um, kind of going back to what you were saying about, I think someone you worked with had um, a significant thing happen to them in their personal life, which made them um, take a different approach to work and the people that they work with. And I was just going to ask, do you think that that is when you do have a traumatic experience in your life it 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 makes you reevaluate a lot of things including the way you treat people the way you work um the the setup if you say run if, if you manage or run a workplace how that setup is no if only it was that simple route if i use my own experience 2009 cancer Six months off work, close to death. Came back. Came back thinking life's going to be completely different. I'm only going to do work that's important. I'm not going to worry about the small stuff. I know what's important. Everything's going to be different. Six months later, exactly the same as before. Sweating the small stuff, being angry with people around me. How did that happen? Sleepwalking. It's the same thing as previously. You're not... None of this is easy. None of this just happens. You have to make it happen. Blows up. But for all of us, those big experiences, no, they're not a get-out-of-jail-free card. They're not a sort of somehow I can now change the world. It's still, and this is what I write about in the book, it still takes effort. You have to stick to the diet. Well, you have to know what the diet is first. You have to work out what you want and then you have to stick to it because it's far too easy to say yes to the client. It's far too easy not to put the boundaries in place between work and home life. And yeah, my message to my 29-year-old self, put those put those in place. How much of the... So my boys are a bit older than... a bit younger than Tom. Can't, I can't think how old you are, Tom, but I think a bit younger. Yeah. <laughs> about 26 uh... yeah so they're a bit younger so they start just below you how much of them growing up do I remember my wife would say to me do you remember that I think no no I don't go back to role models I remember m- my first boss saying to me whatever you do don't end up in the position that I ended up in where I woke up one morning and thought my kids have grown up what did I do about that I thought I remember thinking that's really important advice he's just given me what did I do about it nothing at all We've got to really take this stuff seriously. And what I'm saying is that's down to you. That's not down to anybody else. In what way can people take this stuff more seriously? I know you've 
maybe feel like you feel a bit differently about your working life as you used to. You know, you used to self self confessed uh, workaholic. What what is it? You say it's down to the individual, but what exactly is it? Is it a daily practice of 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 mindfulness, that kind of thing? I mean, how do people kind of put that into action, if you like? Because some people may find that really useful to hear from someone like yourself. It is a daily practice of mindfulness, Tom. It literally is. I mean, it's also creating those moments in the day where you do stop. And if your head is full of thoughts, because that's what it's full of, thoughts, and thoughts are not you. This is a, I write about this. That moment when I suddenly realised that the, the, the continuous creation of ideas in my mind was not me. It was something I did. I always thought that was who I was. No, it's not. I cannot do that. If you spent 20 minutes in the morning creating a, a place where your mind is free of thoughts, you can go to that place later in the day. And I did it between meetings today. My mind was very full of thoughts on, oh, that's been rubbish. And I didn't want the, I didn't want the rubbish thoughts to be into the next project, which could come out in back-to-back Zoom calls. So I, I created five minutes and I basically created a, a, a space in my mind where there were no thoughts. And that really did calm me down. And, but I never did that stuff when I was 29, 39, 49. I've only started doing it in the last few years. Mm. How, how do you think that your, your life and you know, your career and personal life would be different if you were taking that really seriously? in your younger life like you say 29 say do you think you would be happier oh, look, I'm, I'm really lucky to go back to where I started with that story you know I've got away with it maybe I think I think there's probably a lot of relationships that will go south or north or whichever way they go when it's wrong um, because people are too focused on work I think I missed a lot of happiness on the way through Tom to be honest without wanting to sound whatever that might sound but that's difficult to imagine or quantify. I definitely missed re- developing relationships with the boys that I might have thought I would have when they were younger. I think my relationships are good now. Um, I think they've always been okay. But I think that's about this boundary thing. And I, I really do want people to, to get that right. And as I say that, I start thinking people are going to say that I'm encouraging a snowflake generation aren't they but i'm not i'm encouraging a generation to be bloody good at what they do inside work and outside work i guess that's the key thing isn't it is creating that boundary in between your your work life and your and your personal life the definition of workaholism that i use workaholism manifests itself through self-imposed demands you create this yeah It's an inability to regulate work habits and overindulgence in work to the exclusion of most other life activities. Overindulgence in work. And I'm absolutely clear that that's what I did. I'm not sure that I enjoyed work, but I overindulged in it because it was something... I could do, and it gave me a sense of value in some way. But it blocked out all the other stuff. And it was that inability to regulate the work habits that I really want people to focus on. 
there's a there's a piece about workaholism being very similar to alcoholism, and I think that's right. I was never sure when I first looked at mm. workaholism what it was that I was trying to soothe or remedy with all the work. And I'm still not sure that I've got that right in my mind. But somehow it's the focus on work is an excuse for not focusing on the other stuff. The being a partner, the being a father, the being a son or whatever friend. And I think because we have challenging and fulfilling jobs, we think, oh, we'll spend a lot of time on that and we'll be good at that, that'd be great. And you sort of don't focus on the other stuff that isn't going quite so well. I do feel like I'm, like I'm much more able to cope with a lot of this stuff. But a lot of that also, Tom, is about being authentic and open. And, you know, if I'm feeling a bit emotional, I'll say to people, sorry, I'm feeling a bit emotional. You know, and, and I suppose when you're in my position, you can get away with that. And some people find it hard, I think, particularly when they're young and trying to uh, fill the shoes of who they want to be, if you like. I think some people find it tricky to open up to people. And, you know, I've touched I've touched on this in a previous episode and I'll say it again, like, but Roop's been a really good friend of me as someone that I can open up with about that, that kind of stuff. Some friends aren't necessarily receptive to that. And um, like I said, I think it's about finding the, the right people and the, the, to, to, to say that, that kind of stuff too, because it's very important. Just thinking about the, the bloke thing, which you're sort of touching on there, I think there's really clear evidence. And one of the people I asked to send me some stuff sent me something about this. Women are 1.5 times more likely to report on poor mental health than men. I, I, I've never really got this thing about blokes not talking about their emotional state because I'm I'm not someone who's who's um, shied away from talking about my emotional state mm. ever. I think it's a family trait matter. <laughs> Possibly. Who knows? I think a lot of a lot of people do struggle to do that. And I think it would be a very good idea if people were happier doing it. But I also want people to focus on what it is that they're here to do. And I think through that practice can come a lot of positive stuff. Women are 1.5 times more likely to, so one assumes, with a similar level of mental stress. It's interesting that you said, was it 1.5? They're 1.5 times more likely to report it, to seek help. Um, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, d I don't know whether Tom would agree with me, but I, I think working... So I, I, I work in PR, same as Tom. And I think working with... Um, in, a, in a, what is essentially a female-dominated industry working with women is different to work with men it's similar to what you what you said there in terms of what women are 1.5 times more likely to report their mental health issues i have um great female role models in my family as well um but also working with women helped me to be more open in terms of talking about feelings realizing the benefits of talking about your feelings um and I'm I'm sure Tom would would agree with me as well um, on on that sense. I definitely agree with you. And you know, on, on top of you know seeing seeing women in senior positions, which is a fantastic thing for, for for unleashing the potential that you know women have just as much as men. Like you say, 
yeah, female-dominated working environments, maybe there is it. It's easier to talk about feelings because it's more of an acceptable behaviour. And I wonder if that's something you might have seen, Matt. Yeah, definitely. Um, not that I... Well, Berndine has always been highly female. And that was by design, actually, because when we were setting up, I could see that there were a number of women who were being very badly served by the legal industry, not getting the just rewards and also getting a hell of a lot of stress and bad treatment. And it's been one of the things that makes me proudest is the fact that we've given a number of those people jobs. You know, it's not unusual to be in a group of senior people and to have you know, one, possibly two women in the room, sometimes none. Be that person who allows other people, who encourages other people to talk about how they're feeling. As we kind of take a view toward, towards wrapping up, Matt, I think on all of the areas we've covered with you, something that's really come across to me is this sense of wanting people to feel personally empowered to make change, whether that's this practice of mindfulness or being that kind of person of empathy and, and noticing how people are feeling in the workplace and, and making places a happier place to be. It's a, a lot, of, seems to be a lot about personal change and uh, there's a there's a saying that my brother who is who is a role model to me in many ways always brings up is he always says the best time to plant a tree is is 10 years ago the second best time is today and i think that may be a very uh classic saying i don't know if it's one of his own or not um but i think the sense of personal change and everybody doing their bit in their little way to influence the world is absolutely important. And I, I get the feeling that that's something that you believe in quite strongly as well. I love that. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely do think that the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. But I can definitely see that the second best time is today. What I want to say <laughs> is very simple. It's think about the human impact of what you are doing on the people around you. Because that's what will make you a great leader, colleague, performer. Yeah, I mean, the book, the book's, you know, reclaiming kindness for the world of work because there's great benefit for everybody in that kindness. And, and, and I've got this little three-stage kindness tool. Stage one is just basic courtesy. And, and actually, there's a lot of organisations where that's, <laughs> that would be a great thing to you know, aspire to because in some organisations that isn't. Level two is thinking about your impact. Level three at the top of the triangle, <laughs> is holding in your hands other people's hopes and dreams and fears. And if you can do that in a workplace setting, you'll be a very special person. And good things happen to special people in workplaces. You know, when you meet people who are running organisations like the ones you're working in, they're not the people who crunch the numbers early doors. They're the people who listened to their colleagues and created some space for them and got well sort of then. They're the people who really get this stuff. Well, Matt, I want to say you know, thank you so much for your time today. You're, I know you're a very busy, very busy man, but it's been phenomenal talking to you. I think your way of storytelling is, uh, is, is incredibly interesting and I hope that it'll make for a great episode. Well, hopefully. Let's see what happens with the edit, yeah? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Really nice to meet you. Nice one. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for taking the time. Big thanks to Matt Dean for joining us today for this podcast. It was produced by Rupert and myself and sound designed by Jack Sudderby. Follow us on Instagram at Behind the Mask Podcast for more about the pod.